0: What do they call it? A uh, schoolhouse rock. This is how a bill becomes a law. <laughs> uh, this is how the Kansas legislature works, type of thing. Hello, Marissa. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> <laughs> I'm good. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> it's good to be back in the recording studio. Thank you. And April for filling in the last episode while I was out sick with no voice. Absolutely.
1: It went very smoothly. I was very very happy how it went it was great
0: yes and it was very exciting to get to listen to it yeah for the absolutely. very first time as a listener yeah <laughs> that was fun well today's episode is a conversation that we had with Heather Brom, the health policy advisor for Kansas Action for Children so KAC is a nonprofit organization that works to advocate for Kansas children through
1: bipartisan advocacy partnership and information sharing their mission is to shape health, education, and economic policy that will improve the lives of Kansas children and families by working with policymakers, local organizations, and fellow advocates to inform sound policy, foster collaboration, and promote an equitable tax system. Yes.
0: Casey is a very valuable coalition partner with the Alliance. We work together a lot to bring attention to the need for expansion, and their take is really unique since they focus on children and how important expansion is for
1: children, too. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go ahead and dive into our conversation with Heather now.
0: Heather, welcome to the Health in the 34th podcast. We're so glad that you are joining us today. So introduce yourself. Tell, tell the listeners about yourself.
2: Hi, my name is Heather Brahm, and I am the health policy advisor with Kansas Action for Children. And KAC, as we're known, um, is a nonprofit advocacy organization working to make Kansas a place where every child has the opportunity to grow up healthy, And thrive. We work across the political spectrum to improve the lives of Kansas children through bipartisan advocacy, partnership, and information sharing on key issues including early learning and education, health, and economic security for families.
1: So as the health policy advisor for KAC, your job is to keep up with legislative issues and advocate for policies at the Kansas State House that will improve the lives of children in Kansas. And as far as cane care expansion goes, the most immediate and obvious benefit is to adults ages 18 to 64 who would become eligible for coverage. So, I think the first big question for you is, why does KAC care so much about cane care expansion when the focus of expansion is on adults? Sure. Um, thank you for asking that question. I'm actually going to take a step back sure. um, before we
2: get to expansion, and that is, you know, starting with why does kids' health matter? And healthy development, no matter the outcome of a child's birth, starts from the beginning of their life through timely and regular access to affordable health insurance and care, screenings, therapies, and treatments, healthy brain development, stability in housing and food access, and so much more. Focusing on the health of kids early in their life is more likely to reduce their healthcare costs when they become adults. Kids with health insurance are more likely to enter school ready to learn, graduate, and become healthy, productive adults. And so through CanCare, which includes the Medicaid and CHIP options, it works together to provide free or low-cost health coverage for kids, covering time-sensitive services like doctor and dentist visits, immunizations, therapies, prescriptions, and hospital stays. These programs are a lifeline for Kansas families who aren't offered or can't afford health insurance for children on their own. These programs are designed to work together to meet children's healthcare needs and ensure that no one is left behind. And these kids are eligible for these programs at different family income levels. So when it comes to parents, um, Mm who would be the ones eligible for expansion, Mm -hmm. kids are not born ready to take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. And so if we want kids to succeed from the very beginning, we must focus on ensuring that their families are also succeeding and thriving. And so the health of parents and caretakers matters to the health of our children. Mm -hmm. And we want all people in our communities to get the healthcare services that they need. But health starts with that insurance access and affordability, which is a large hurdle for far too many Kansas. And so right now, Kansas parents who make less than 38% of the federal poverty level, which is just about $8,760 a year for a family of three, Mm-hmm. That's not a lot of money. Mm-mm. Those oh. families can qualify for can care if their income is below that dollar level. Right. But if that same family's income is between $8,761 and $23,030, the adults do not qualify for can care or premium assistance on the federal insurance exchange.
0: And that is... Not a lot when you consider, like you said, housing and all the other things that they have to take
2: into account. Right. So expanding care would remove an ever growing barrier for many parents and caretakers of children, including grandparents under the age of 65. Mm-hmm. They make too much money to qualify for Medicaid, but too little to access insurance on their own. <laughs> and so for these people in this, you know, in this coverage gap. Rarely do they have access to jobs that provide health insurance as a job benefit. Mm -hmm. And the adults without access to insurance through Medicaid or the federal exchange are known to be in the coverage gap.
0: So I saw a phrase that you wrote at the beginning of the 2022 legislative session about the importance of closing the health insurance coverage gap. And um, one of the phrases that you used in there was healthy kids need healthy parents, right? And that really is... What it comes down to, like it's great, like we want healthy children, um, but they'll thrive much better when mom and dad are also healthy. In that brief that I mentioned, you talked about how most low-income children are eligible for coverage under the Children's Health Insurance Program, but uh, I saw that we we still have around thirty-eight thousand uninsured children in the state. Is that? still an accurate number and why does this happen?
2: There's really two big reasons going on. The first is that Kansas does have some restrictions on CanCare eligibility based on some immigration statuses, including a five-year waiting period for some immigrants. Kids are included in these restrictions in Kansas. Some states do not include children in this waiting period. Some states choose to cover all kids regardless of their immigration status. Some states choose to cover all pregnant women regardless of their immigration status. Kansas does not. Kansas has some pretty serious restrictions. So Hmm. that could be one contributing factor. Mm -hmm. But the other one is that we know that kids in states that have not expanded Medicaid yet um, are more likely to be uninsured as their families miss out on the financial security and peace of mind that comes with having health coverage. So many children, like you said, may be eligible for CanCare already, but their families may be unaware of that eligibility. Mm. And so when parents and caretakers and children's lives become eligible for CanCare through expansion of the program, they are much more likely to enroll their children mm-hmm. as well. This is known as the welcome that effect. That's, oh. that's what it's called. It's called the welcome Mat effect. States that have expanded Medicaid have seen large reductions in their rates of uninsured kids because when parents sign up for health coverage through expansion, again, they often can realize they can also enroll their children. A newly released report in early December by Georgetown Center on Children and Families examined the number of uninsured kids across the country. And that report illustrated this impact. In 2021, Oklahoma reduced their uninsured kids numbers from 86,000 to 75,000 in one year. One potential contributing impact and factor, Oklahoma
1: implemented Medicaid expansion in 2021. And the report directly makes that connection. Heather, one of the biggest wins that we've had in terms of health insurance gains in Kansas recently has been the extension of postpartum care. And I know KAC was instrumental in making that happen. Can you give us an overview of that? What did that law change and how will it benefit Kansas kids and families?
2: So the 2022 legislature passed funding for the state to begin to offer 12 months postpartum or what is known as post-birth coverage to those in the pregnant women Medicaid category. Previously, these women lost their Medicaid coverage 60 days after birth. And we know that's not nearly long enough. A lot of things will happen in that first year after pregnancy. And so that postpartum extension, as we call it, was an important first step. And we applaud the legislature for taking that action.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: However, research shows and that Medicaid expansion in other states improves preconception and prenatal care. Mm-hmm. These women need medical care before they even get pregnant. Right. They shouldn't be waiting to get all these things addressed after they become pregnant. It starts way before the pregnancy begins. And so we know it improves this care, and it's also associated with lower maternal and infant mortality rates. Mm-hmm. And that is because more adults will utilize that preventative care that can improve the health and well being of women before, during, and after pregnancy. And supports the healthy development of parents and children together.
0: You know, we talk about that, the postpartum piece, but mm-hmm. surprisingly, I mean, I have I have birthed a child, so I feel I feel qualified to speak on this. Um, <laughs> but we don't like we don't talk about the the prenatal stuff as much as the postpartum. And you're right, like getting, especially if it's just not something that you you know about already if you're not somebody who researches on the internet about that topic. Um, what is you know I learned things that I didn't know and I've considered myself pretty pretty prepared. So the, the importance I'm glad you brought that up because I don't think you can overstate the importance of that.
2: We've been talking a little bit about the maternal health, but this Mm -hmm. also making sure these women have access to care way before pregnancy, during pregnancy and after it can also help address infant mortality. Oh yeah. And that is because when a parent has healthcare access through insurance coverage before, during and after pregnancy and in between pregnancies, we haven't talked about that part either. Oh yeah. You know, if you're choosing to have multiple children, Mm -hmm. medical care needs to happen between your pregnancies. So a parent is much more likely if they have insurance access to address chronic healthcare conditions that can impact an infant's health
1: mm-hmm.
2: and the health of a parent, you know, and this is physical health, mental health.
0: Yeah. I was going to say the mental health after you, after you birth the child is something I, we keep, we don't talk enough about
2: it happens during pregnancy too. Yeah. It's, I mean, and you know, the, again, focus will end up being on, you know, well, mom's not doing well. Well, mom's not doing well, baby's not doing well. You're beginning to also hear conversations on the focus on dads and the partners involved. Their health matters as well and can influence the health of mom and baby. Uh It's all connected. We're all connected.
0: When the federal COVID-19 pandemic disaster declaration ends, which will be likely in 2023, there is a risk that many individuals who are currently enrolled in canned care coverage will lose that coverage, not because they no longer qualify, but because of uh, a phrase that kind of makes is weird administrative churning. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how I feel about that phrase, but it's basically a lack of paperwork or people in the program not having the proper documentation administratively so they still qualify but, you know, for any number of reasons, the, the paperwork just isn't there. So what does that mean for Kansas children?
2: So let's let's unpack administrative churn a little bit more. Yes. So listeners... Um,
0: Please do, because what a loaded phrase.
2: Yes. <laughs> so research shows that when large numbers of eligibility redeterminations occur, churn rates, which are defined as the temporary loss of Medicaid or CHIP coverage, in which enrollees disenroll and then re-enroll within a short period of time. Mm, mm -hmm. These turn rates increase, particularly for children. So in August, HHS released national projections to estimate how many Americans are likely to reduce, are likely to lose Medicaid coverage after the public health emergency ends due to ineligibility or procedural reasons. And a Georgetown Center for Children and Families analysis this report concluded that up to 72%, let me say that again, up to 72% of children ages 0 to 17 may be disenrolled due to this administrative churn or procedural reasons. And so what, what, you know, how many kids is that nationwide? 3.8 million. (gasps)
0: 3.8 million. Wow. I should say more, but all I think is, wow, that's yeah. a really big number. Yeah. <laughs> oh
2: my gosh. But here's why this is such a big problem. Kids may be disinvolved from can care due to administrative churn mm-hmm. or procedural reasons when the state doesn't receive information about them to verify eligibility. This may occur due to system failures. But why does this happen? Why why do some parents not respond to information requests or they don't get things turned in time? Mm-hmm. Reasons for administrative churn can include parents never receive a notice, even when their contact information is updated with the state.
0: Oh wow! So it's not just a phone number change or address change. Oh their, wow! Their
2: information can be correct, and they, for different reasons, don't receive that information. Oh my! Information they send back to the state might not be successfully received. Mm-hmm. Be received, or parents can't get through to the call center. Mm-hmm to attempt to address issues. Mm -hmm. And so these projections are deeply concerning and could mean that nearly three out of every four children losing their Medicaid coverage will remain eligible for the Medicaid or CHIP program. And so kids who lose their care coverage due to procedural reasons, but remain eligible would have to re-enroll. And when they re-enroll, they have to wait for that coverage to be reactivated. (sighs) And restarted. And so that delays important time sensitive doctor's appointments, mm-hmm. immunizations, screenings, and treatments.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Delay in medical care for kids is serious. Mm-hmm. And it will cost the state additional money to re enroll these kids. That's a good point, too. When it's,
0: did you say three of four children will remain eligible? Yeah. So that's startling the number that could lose coverage when three out of four remain eligible,
2: most likely. Biggest thing is, um, from KAC's perspective, is we want to make sure whatever efforts happen in the state, parents are targeted. Because kids are not going to go online and be making sure contact information is updated and other things. It's going to be their parents. And so how do you reach parents as part of all of this?
1: Heather, on on, uh, the KAC website I noticed that you have an intro to advocacy guide for individuals who are interested in learning more about how the Kansas legislative process works and the path a bill takes to become a law and how to use your voice to talk with your elected officials. What advice would you give to someone who has a passion topic, like CanCare Expansion for example, who wants to advocate but maybe doesn't know where to start or feels intimidated by the process? I'm going to answer this question from a personal perspective, actually. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I once was intimidated too. Yeah. I was scared to do this work. um, If you can believe it and struggled with fear when advocating, especially back when I was first getting started um, as just a citizen. Like Mm -hmm. I started out in advocacy as just a concerned citizen. But the first time I walked into a congressional office, um, six and a half years ago with a team of librarians, um, to advocate for a national library advocacy day. We, I don't remember which Kansas, um, Congress it was, mm. like may, may have been Senator Moran's office. And we were to go into a conference room and talk to one of his staffers and we planned out how this was going to go. I think it was like a team of six and mm. we each had our issues that we were supposed mm. to do. And I asked, could I go last So I could watch what everyone else did and was going to say that was the plan. And so we sit down and this person who I will not name (laughs) by name, he turns to me and says, Heather, why don't you get us started? (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly what I asked.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I have no idea what I'm
2: doing. I I had this deer in the headlights Mm -hmm. look momentarily and then I took a breath Mm -hmm. And I looked at the person we were talking to, realized she was 22 years old. Mm -hmm. I knew more than she did. Mm -hmm. And I started and, you know, after six meetings, I was an old pro Mm -hmm. and I've never really looked back from being scared. It's, you know, I I deal with it from time to time, but you know, you jump in in spite (laughs) of your fears and you quickly learn that a lot of the time, advocacy is at its heart holding a conversation to Mm -hmm. someone about an issue you are already deeply passionate about. Mm -hmm. And if your voice is not at the table, you're not going to be heard. Mm -hmm. And so if talking to a lawmaker intimidates you, first start with your friends, Mm -hmm. your family, and then start to branch out to others. Write letters and emails. Make phone calls. Convince others to take action. Team up with a veteran advocate to go talk to a lawmaker. Watch what they do. Mm -hmm. Advocacy looks like a lot of different things. And so you may not convince folks when you have these conversations, but I firmly believe in the mantra that every conversation is an opportunity to change a mind, to plant a seed. You never know which one could tip someone over the edge and change their position on an issue.
0: I love that. Me
2: too. Hmm?
0: Can I get an episode title out of that? I think <laughs> oh, so. That'll realize. be the TikTok
2: clip. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, the federal level, once you realize you're usually talking to a 22-year-old, yeah. it's mm-hmm. no longer scary. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: absolutely. And they are just people. Mm-hmm. Taylor in our office talks about that. Because uh, we do have people that call and say, I want to do this. But, you know, I'm intimidating because they're an elected official. Like, they're just a person. And they work for you. And it's okay if they don't agree with you. Exactly. It is uh, like... For <laughs> those of us that don't like cl- conflict, run the other way. Yeah. But like, like you said, if you don't say it, they'll never know what you want. Absolutely.
2: They so. want to hear from you in those cases. They say that again and again. I want to hear from you, even if we disagree.
0: So we kind of just talked about... How you personally came to the health policy world, but you know what makes you passionate talking about you and 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 what brought you here? and if somebody wants to get involved in advocating for children or can care expansion or criminal justice, whatever, like what 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 would you say to
2: that person? So I am a longtime passionate advocate on a number of issues, particularly public education. cause yeah. I'm the daughter and granddaughter and great niece of public school teachers. I grew up in the Kansas public school system. Mm -hmm. I'm a proud graduate of Mm -hmm. one. And I'm also a passionate advocate for libraries. Mm -hmm. And that's because my formal training professionally is as a librarian. In my library work, I focused on online systems support and administration of online systems, training and troubleshooting. And helping small rural libraries in the northeast region of kansas uh-huh. build capacity and serve their communities and so how did i get from there yeah to health policy yeah well i tried the academic path for a few years working towards a phd in information science and my mm. research turned toward how advocates use information in their efforts mm-hmm. however the pandemic hit i was sitting in south carolina and decided I didn't want to stay down there when we didn't know how long, you know, the shutdowns were starting. And I just, I didn't want to sit down in South Carolina in mm-hmm. a lot of unknowns. And I came home to Kansas. And KAC's job posting for their health policy advisor position came across my desk. I'd been wanting to move into advocacy work full time. And this was my chance. And mm-hmm. I applied. And the rest, you could say, is history. The last part of this is, I did not realize this until after I'd taken the job, but I looked at my family and my parents and my siblings and their spouses, and we have all, as an entire family, been involved in health work. So (laughs) it was really funny when when I realized that was like our whole family in different ways has been
1: involved in health work.
0: Makes sense why you would be passionate about that then growing up, yeah.
1: So KAC's mission is to shape health, education, and economic policy that will improve the lives of Kansas children and families. In addition to care expansion, what other issues is KAC looking at for this legislative session?
2: The first one um, to mention with you all is one that gets a little bit technical, and that's what we call the CHIP, or for the Children's Health Insurance Program, eligibility fix. According to state law, Kansas kids can qualify for the CHIP program if their family's income is less than 250% of those federal poverty income guidelines. But when CHIP was last significantly updated in 2008, the legislature accidentally pegged eligibility to the 2008 federal (gasps) poverty income guidelines. You can already see what the problem is.
0: So it's not the 2022, it's the
2: 2008? So as, as a result... Every year, the state has had to annually convert the eligibility level to 2008 numbers. (laughs) Oh, my. The converted percentage had declined to 225% by 2021. Yeah. In 2022, the legislature did temporarily fix the issue through the budget process, but a permanent fix is still needed. So KAC will continue advocating for a permanent fix in state law to this issue in 2023.
0: Yes, I'd say so. That was an oversight. Yep.
2: <laughs> yep. We only recently learned about it, too. So it, it's out there for all those years.
0: So the 250% of the federal poverty level in 2008 is the equivalent of 225 in 2021. Am I? Yeah. Okay. Just making sure I understood that because that's a big chunk of people that should have qualified that didn't. So families' yeah.
2: income wouldn't change and their kids could have lost their TIP coverage because of this. Wow. So. Another issue you'll um, see us advocate for is we want to make sure that the state maintains the current immunization schedule Mm -hmm. and requirements for child care in K-12 school settings. Mm -hmm. Childhood vaccinations are one of the most important health tools of the modern era and have allowed many children to grow up to be healthy, thriving adults. Kansas, like a vast majority of states, requires several routine vaccinations for children to attend a child care center or K-12 school. And those vaccines include polio, measles, mm-hmm. and pertussis. Mm-hmm. Since 2020, though, and this is pre-pandemic, this is pre-COVID actually, but since 2020, Kansas lawmakers have attempted to weaken those requirements mm-hmm. that have kept our kids safe for decades. Mm-hmm. No changes have become law yet, but we expect to see this critical policy for kids and for community health. Mm-hmm. Increasingly challenged in the coming years from a lot of different directions.
0: I feel like that's something we've learned in the pandemic is just how interconnected everything is. Like you, you look at vaccinations for kids, and that also affects teachers and and, and child
1: care providers.
0: Child care providers, and yeah, so we're all so interconnected. What a so when you say what do you say community? To health yeah it impacts
2: yeah and community health
1: because you have yeah.
2: people in the community who cannot get vaccinated because yeah. of health conditions or if you go through certain cancer treatments mm. where your immune system is completely knocked out like a bone marrow transplant mm-hmm. you have to get revaccinated mm-hmm. you have to go through the entire process again because your immune system has lost that training that it got from the immunization
0: well, i don't childhood. think i knew that that's it's and, you know, people have family members at home that are doing that and they go to school and.
2: Yeah, we really, really on yeah. the health of one another to stay healthy. Yeah, we do. It's not just individual choices. Mm-hmm. Additional, you know, non-health um, policy priorities oh, mm-hmm. for KAC include improving the eligibility and access to family support programs like cash, food and child care assistance. There's mm. a lot of barriers in place. Mm -hmm. for families to access those services. And we want to see those barriers taken down. We want to make sure that we're appropriating state general fund dollars to draw down the remaining federal child care and development block grant funding. We are not drawing down the total amount of money at the federal level that we can because we're not matching at the state level. This is tax policy. We oppose changes to individual or corporate income tax structures that reduce equity for taxpayers, and risk budget stability. And we will continue to protect and support our public schools in the state.
0: Medicaid expansion is on your list, obviously, too. Um, But another thing which I am interested in partly because I had a baby at one point, is advocating for an increase on the cap on the newborn screening program. So can you tell us what the newborn screening program is and what kind of increase are you talking about? Why is this important to KAC?
2: So in 2020, over 34,000 babies were born in Kansas. 34,000? Over 30. Okay,
0: over 34,000.
2: Over 34,000. 34, Some of those babies looked perfectly healthy at birth. Mm-hmm but may have had a hidden condition that will appear later in life and can only be detected through a screening process while it is still easily treatable. Not treated early, these conditions can result in lifelong severe medical conditions, Mm -hmm. physical um, or intellectual developmental disabilities, Mm -hmm. and even death. And when these conditions are caught and treated early, children can have a very different outcome in Mm -hmm. life. These conditions are screened through the state's Universal Newborn Screening Program. And so as you already described, Mm -hmm. when a baby is born in Kansas, a spot of blood is gathered from their heel Hmm. and sent off to a state lab to be checked for 34 conditions and diseases. Screens for hearing loss and congenital heart defects are also performed at this time. The state lab sends the results of those tests Within the baby's first week of life, it's a very quick turnaround. Positive or abnormal results automatically trigger a follow-up screening. And so if a second positive result is found, families are connected to healthcare providers to determine next steps, Mm -hmm. including treatment plans for these conditions. The newborn screening program is funded by the state. However, over the last several years, the program has run into budget cap issues because of a state law. The legislature has discussed several bills to raise this cap. One even passed the Senate Mm. um, earlier this year. Mm -hmm. I guess one even passed the Senate in 2022 Mm -hmm. because it might be next year. Yeah. (laughs) But these bills have not become law. Instead, temporary one-year fixes keep being put into place during the budget process to Mm. overrule the budget cap limit in statute, which is currently $2.5 million. Mm. That doesn't, that sounds like some money, but when you get into 34 conditions that you're screening mm-hmm. 34,000 babies for, and there's, you know, program staff, um, most of the costs associated with the program are labric- laboratory costs. Mm-hmm. That money doesn't go a long way. And there are more, te- you know, there's at least one more test waiting in the wings for the state to add. Oh. And in years to come, as more conditions that are treated uh-huh. are discovered. More tests will be needed to be added.
0: So what happens when they hit that cap?
2: When they saw the cap was coming, they've been proactive. Mm. Like, oh, we've got to raise this. And so they tried the normal bill route. And then when that didn't happen, there was at least willingness to, okay, let's temporarily raise this. through The budgetary yeah. process. But okay, that's good. That year yeah. after year after year.
0: Let's fix it. Let's fix fix it. it. And so for the
2: program to succeed long term, the budget cap must be raised by the legislature permanently Mm. in order for the program to continue to grow as new screenings are recommended to be added and the program wants to continue to be sustainable and grow stronger.
0: Mm -hmm. I think that we both really focus on the person. Mm -hmm. And so, like, for me, I'm like, why wouldn't you want newborn babies to be screened? But it sounds like it's even a, like, fiscally, like... If we're catching these conditions when they're more treatable, it's going to be fiscally better for everybody, too. So if you're more inclined by fiscal numbers than than human stories, it's it makes sense there, too.
2: You can get into hundreds, if not millions of dollars of differences between catching these (gasps) conditions And, and that's if they're treatable. Again, some of these conditions that this program catches, if they're not caught in time, they result in death.
0: Wow. That's early huge. In life. Mm-hmm. And we don't want to be left behind in Kansas. No. Like, I hate that stereotype that, you know, we're flyover state and we're behind. Like, we should be looking for everything that we can and and giving kids the best head start that we can. And let so.
2: me go back to where I started on the podcast. We should be investing in kids mm-hmm. from the very beginning of their lives. And this is one immediate way to do so i've even i've even heard someone from ncsl call this um i guess it wasn't it wasn't ncsl it was a podcast by ncsl oh yeah said you know the newborn screening program could be considered one of the most time sensitive functions of state government because mm-hmm. again you're back to that one week turnaround yeah. time really matters with this program on some of these conditions
0: shout out to the ncsl podcast <laughs> we'll tag you <laughs>
1: Heather, uh, another of the things that uh, KAC actively advocates for is passing and funding measures that investigate disparities in health outcomes between races and ethnicities, and then, of course, advocating for prevention of those disparities. So can you talk to us more about this? What kinds of disparities do we see in Kansas, and what public policies does KAC advocate for in response to them?
2: Sure. So we
1: believe that all Kansans deserve adequate health care. No matter
2: their income, their race, their a their identity or ability. Yet we know that severe disparities continue to exist between races and ethnicities and in rural areas, especially when it comes to infant and maternal mortality and health complications. And so I want to focus for a minute on one of these issues. And that is, I have a little bit of data from KDHE to share on infant mortality. Mm-hmm which is the death of an infant before their first birthday. Okay. Infant mortality is an important way to view the overall health of a society. If our babies are not making it to their first birthday, something's wrong Mm. in society. And so in 2020, 224 Kansas infants died before their first birthday. That means our state lost the equivalent of over 12 kindergarten classrooms. (gasps) Wow. wow. 18 students per classroom. Yeah. 224. That's over 12 kindergarten classrooms due to infant mortality. That should be deeply concerning on its own. Mm -hmm. But when the state breaks the data down into white, black, and Hispanic populations, we can see a stark difference in how babies of different races are affected. For instance, we know that Black babies are over three times more likely to die before their first birthday compared to white babies.
0: Three times? Over three. Over three times.
2: Over three times. times. Think about what this data means. How many families in our state have lost their babies before their first birthday? Mm. And we still don't fully understand why these stark differences exist in Kansas. That is why the state must do much more to investigate and propose and implement Mm. solutions. The data does fluctuate and is based on small numbers. However, Black infant death rates have consistently remained higher than those of White and Hispanic families over the past 20 years. Wow. So according to the CDC, in 2020, the five leading causes of infant deaths were birth defects, preterm birth, and low birth weights, SIDS or sudden infant death syndrome, Mm -hmm. injuries and maternal pregnancy complications. Mm -hmm. Black babies in Kansas are more likely to be born earlier than 37 weeks than white babies. Mm. And so making sure families have health coverage before, during and after pregnancy is a significant way to address some of these concerns about infant mortality health. Mm. And it's one of the many reasons why Kansas must expand can
0: care. So we, we will go ahead and ask you the question that all of our guests get. Um, and I love the range of answers that we get with this one. So there is no right answer, it's whatever. But Heather, why are you one of the eight and 10 Kansans who support can care expansion?
2: So the evidence supporting the benefits of Medicaid expansion is frankly overwhelming. Through May 2021, the Kaiser Family Foundation tracked over 600 over 600 research studies finding positive effects of expansion across a wide range of categories. The evidence can't be ignored any longer. But at day's end, I support care expansion because we all have neighbors. Friends and family in this state who do not have access to or can't afford health insurance on their own. And many may not be aware that their kids already qualify for CanCare. We know that expanding CanCare will help everyone in our state. And at day's end, I also believe in the words of the great Kansan and public health app pioneer, Dr. Samuel Crumbine, mm-hmm. who once said, The health of each of us depends on the health of all of us. We should be doing everything we can as a state to follow his wise words. Expanding CanCare is at the top of that list.
1: So that was our conversation with Heather Brahm from Kansas Action for Children.
0: They are really busy, especially now during the legislative session, keeping track of lots of committees and bills and testifying on behalf of Kansas kids, important things like that. So we really
1: wanna thank Heather for taking the time to chat with us about some of their current priorities. That's it for this episode of Health in the 34th. Be sure to visit our website, expandcancare.com, and join our Steps to Expansion initiative that we currently have going on.
0: We also wanted to let you know that we're planning a rally at the Kansas State House for Wednesday, March 15th. Mark your calendars. If you are able to make it to Topeka, we'd love to have you join us. Also, be sure to sign the petition on our website. We will be delivering that to lawmakers that
1: day, and every single signature counts. And don't forget that you can also keep track of what's going on with us on social media at ExpandCanCare.com on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram. Everybody have a great week. We'll see you again in two weeks. Health in the 34th is a podcast from the Alliance for a Healthy Kansas. We hope you'll take a moment to subscribe and share our podcast with others. Episodes written and produced by Marissa Alcatar and Lacey Kennett. Special thanks to our editor, Callie Holthouse. Episodes available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Join the movement and get involved. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. For more information on the Alliance for Healthy Kansas, visit us at expandcancare.com.
0: Professional! (laughs) Look at that. That was so smooth.
1: (laughs) Only like one mistake. (laughs)